0: She's not and look at it's gone. Watching the perfect, twilight is torn Man, weekend is gone Watching her love, rose that went by that you don't know Anna Kendrick, her, this is her time Away we go
1: mm-hmm. Away we go Away we go mm-hmm. The Anna Kendrick show
0: And welcome back to another episode of Kicking It With Kendrick. I am your host, or one of your hosts, Pierre, and I am joined as always by the lovely Jeff. Hello, Jeff.
1: Hello, Pierre. How are you doing today?
0: I am well. I am well. Maybe a little sleep deprived. That's okay. When am I not? We have another guest joining us today. His name is Callum. Hello, Callum.
2: Hello. Hello. Thank you for having me.
1: Thanks for coming, Callum. Callum is a He's a friend now, but he's a friend of a friend from uh, the podcast Scared Reducing, where normally you guys talk about horror movies, mm-hmm. um, but I don't know if this is unfortunate or not. We, I think there was like one Anna Kendrick horror movie, and we talked about it like way at the beginning, so we couldn't bring you in for that, but I don't know if that's a great loss necessarily.
2: I don't think so. I think I know the movie you're talking about. I couldn't tell you its name. Uh, is it called Elsewhere, actually?
1: It is called Elsewhere.
2: I've never seen it, so uh, don't worry. I wouldn't be on to talk about it anyway. I've never seen it.
1: It's not actually that bad. It just like it's it's just very clearly someone's f- debut, and like yeah. that person did not go on to have a fruitful career in film. I will.
2: You win some, you lose some.
1: He did go on to do pretty well in TV, and Elsewhere is a very good episode of like a true crime television show if it were that.
2: <laughs> but yeah, no, I, it doesn't bother me that I'm not talking a horror movie today. I like, we like uh, cinema in general. The only reason we did a, a horror movie podcast was none of my friends really like horror movies. And my wife, none of her friends really like horror movies. So it's, you know, whenever there's a new horror movie out and there's we're looking for someone to talk to, it's always just been the two of us. So we decided like, hey, you know, we want to do a podcast sort of just a wee hobby to pass the time. What could we do it on? And it's not an original idea, but it's just the one thing where we were like, well, we don't talk to anyone else about this. So we might as well talk about that. And it gives us a chance to watch some horror movies, some of the stuff we haven't seen and whatever. So yeah, that's why we picked horror movies. But we do love cinema in general. Like we're big fans of the Oscars. Like we watch the Oscars every mm-hmm. year. So, you know, it doesn't bother me if I'm not talking horror.
1: I think that uh, as well, you guys are like, You guys are the only podcast that I've seen that talked about Studio 666, which like, (laughs) I mean, horror movies are great. Like, there's so many horror movies. And like, there's so many that just like, even Studio 666 isn't like direct to DVD. It, It didn't go direct to DVD, but it's like, it's not on a lot of people's radars. And yet you guys actually talked about it, which was super cool.
2: Yeah, I mean, we were, and we're not even big, like, Foo Fighters fans. Like, we like the Foo Fighters as much as anyone else. They're a mainstream band. You know, they've got songs you like, a couple of albums. But as soon as the trailer came out and we sort of saw the pitch for it, we were like, you know, that's one to talk about. That looks crazy (laughs) fun. I don't think the movie ends up being as crazy fun as it should. We both agreed that it should be, like, a bonus feature on an album, like a really stupid thing that you buy Mm -hmm. something and you get this free digital download and it's it should be like you know a a tv special like 40 minutes 45 minutes long whereas it's like i think it's like an hour and 45 or something ridiculous but um yeah i ended up we released that episode and then it wasn't long after that uh, taylor hawkins died and we were like i feel kind of bad about how sort of harsh we were on that movie (laughs) but you know again there's nothing you can do about it now
1: for what it's worth, you guys were very charitable to Tara, Taylor Hawkins. He, he's
2: movie. the best in the movie. He is yeah. the best in the movie.
1: So I guess just like one other small thing before we get into stuff we've already sort of like talked about. A, a mutual friend of ours on this uh, show is um, Dakota from ContraZoom. And in I don't think we've ever ended up like talking about it on his show or when he was on our show. But privately, he's very much described our show as a movie of the week podcast which I don't think is an insult, so mm-hmm. I think that's fine. But uh, you guys are another podcast that's like a movie of the week podcast. But I also noticed uh, you guys branching out quite a bit more because like, you guys did one episode d- dedicated to Studio 666 before you've done an episode dedicated to Scream where like something like ContraZoom will do... They'll do episodes that are like two movies together or once they did an episode on the entire filmography of Wes Anderson... I guess the question that I'm trying to get at there is, uh, how what what's coming up for scare traducing? Like, what are you guys doing in the future?
2: Yeah, we, we, we chop and change our minds about what we want to do all the time. We initially started with, we did franchises, we did horror movie franchises. That was our initial hmm. pitch. Each episode would be like, you know, Halloween 1 and Halloween 2 or whatever. We never actually did Halloween, but you get the idea. Mm-hmm. Then we kind of decided, let's just go and watch whatever movie's out, talk about that, try and see if that bumps the lessons a wee bit because people are like, it's in the cinema now. I'll listen to it. But uh, so we chop and change. Upcoming is, I think our next episode is going to be on the Gaspar Noé film Lux Aeterna, which oh, okay. uh, I, I believe is only like 50 minutes long. So it's like kind of a short film. Um, but we had nothing scheduled for the end of May. So we were like, that's coming out on Blu-ray. We haven't seen it. I really like Gaspar Noé. She's, my wife's not as mad on him, but, you know, she's seen some of his crazy work and, you know, we'll watch it. (laughs) So that's coming up. And then Men, the Alex Garland movie, which I believe is out in North America, end of May. It's not out here until the beginning of June. So we'll be doing that in June, which I've heard not great things about, but I love Alex Garland. So I'm hoping that you know it works for me where it doesn't for other people but we we'll, we'll see so that's in june
1: well without without saying too much i actually saw that 2 days ago and i liked it so oh, hopefully okay. that is a good thing
2: i recorded i recorded with contrazoom last night and the co-host rachel she has also seen it she said the opposite of what you just said
1: <laughs> interesting maybe i'll like see if i can weasel my way onto their podcast to confront her about it but anyway, this is an Anna Kendrick podcast. And so for that reason, we would like to know, what are your general thoughts on Anna Kendrick? What brought you to this podcast other than me reaching out and saying, come on our show?
2: I mean, I'm I'm a fan of Anna Kendrick. That's kind of it. Like, as you say, you know, sometimes you want to hear other people's thoughts on her. And she she's like a recognizable star. People know her. But not as many people talk about her as much as other movie stars or whatever so and and there's so many movies of hers that you know I like to talk about or like to listen about that no nobody really talks about or listens about like I'm a huge fan of the last five years which nobody else I know is a fan of that movie so you know it's very rare for me to be like I want to I want to hear other people's thoughts on it and then you google it and you're like no nobody's talked about this movie so and um, that's kind of what brings me to your podcast is like, you guys actually are talking about it. So I can join in.
1: <laughs> uh, speaking of the last five years, that's like one of my favorite episodes that we did for this show. Uh, if you haven't heard that, I I have. I'll uh, link to it in the show notes.
2: I think that was the first episode of your, your series I listened to because I was like, I I love this movie. <laughs> let's, let's, uh, let's join in. And then I listened to the episode with ContraZoom on the, the voices. Uh, yes. Which I have seen the voices, but not in years. And I was listening to it, going, "I re- really need to rewatch that movie because it sounds." I remember liking it, but the way you guys talked about it, I was like, "It sounds way better than I remember." So it's such
1: it. a weird movie. Definitely one of my favorite, like Ryan Reynolds movies, because mm-hmm. he has he has a bit of a
2: he's stuck in he's stuck in a box right now.
1: Yeah, he's 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 got a brand, and mm-hmm. uh, he's very good at doing the same thing. But, like, he's good at doing other things, too, and the voices is very different from what he normally does. It's not a very Red Notice movie, for example.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I'll need to rewatch it.
0: I haven't seen Red Notice, is it? I'm guessing it's the same thing. Same Um, thing.
1: Imagine a movie with Ryan Reynolds, Dwayne the Rock Johnson, and Gal Gadot. Those are both the three stars of that movie and whatever you just imagined that's that movie. It's oh. it's exactly what you'd expect.
2: That they're all like above the material. They're all like this is silly and it's like you, you know it's silly, we know it's silly and it's just I don't know. I don't know. I just want a bit more sincerity in films sometimes and Ryan Reynolds is not sincere. He's mm-hmm. very like ironic winking and all this sort of stuff.
1: So I'm just realizing you're now our second guest to come on and just trash Ryan Reynolds. I mean, not that much, but like, this is now an anti-Ryan Reynolds podcast, I guess.
2: I, I don't hate him. And I, I really like the, the first, I really like the first Deadpool movie. I think it was the second Deadpool movie where I started to get sick of it. So, uh, and then obviously when he shows up in Hobbs and Shaw, and I was just like,
1: enough of this man. Not not to focus too much on Ryan Reynolds here, but like, it's, it's just, he's got one thing he's good at and- people keep casting him for that one thing. I think that's kind of what I like about Anna Kendrick is she does have, she does actually have one thing she's really good at. She's good at being, you know, she appears and she's quirky and relatable and like she can play the cool girl or she can play the girl who thinks she's cool, but she's not actually cool, which is basically the same role. But she's also very often able to break out of that role in, subtle ways that are really good Um, like she's not completely devoid of that in the movie we're going to talk about today but also this isn't the same role as something like Pitch Perfect at the same time so so I guess before we get into the movie I gotta ask you what are your top three Anna Kendrick movies and or performances those do not have to be the same thing
2: I'm I'm gonna keep it simple I'm gonna keep it simple because I could you know I could talk myself out of and into various decisions, you know, the more I think about it, like, as I say, I love the last five years. So I'm like, do I, do I have that in my top three? And then all of a sudden you think, not enough people talk about Paranorman. You're like, let's put Paranorman in my top three. So I'm just going to keep it simple. I'm going to say the, mo- the movies I watch the most and the ones that, you know, that have the replay value. So I'm going to go, it's, they're pretty obvious. It's Scott Pilgrim versus the world. It's a uh, pitch perfect and it is up in the air. Those are the three I watch the most, and Up in the Air is a movie that, for some reason, I do not know why, but that make that gets me motivated. So, like, I'll watch that on a Saturday, and then I'll be like, "I'm going into the office tomorrow to do some overtime." And they're like, "You don't have to." And it's like, "Nah, I need to work. I need to focus." Uh, I don't know what it is about that movie; it really it gets my uh, gets my my juices flowing in terms of like work ethic, which sometimes I can be a bit lazy. So. Those are. The, I'll go with those three, pretty obvious choices.
1: I think "Up in the Air" just hits like a certain generation a specific way. <laughs> it's a good movie. It's, yeah, well, we had uh, we had Rachel from Contrazoom on here to talk about. Well, she was not here to talk about "Up in the Air," but when we had her on, she mentioned you know "Up in the Air" is just like uh, it's it's talking about exactly her generation because she was coming out of college and going into the working working world at the time that the big recession happened and that's exactly what Anna Kendrick is doing <laughs> in that movie and so I think it just like it just hits people of a specific age group very targetedly
2: yeah but as, as I said I could I could easily talk myself into throwing the last five years paranormal a simple favor end of like I could easily throw them in if I gave it another second's thought so I'm gonna I'm gonna just go with my gut
1: Well, I think that's the um, that's that's like one of the things that we want to like get to the bottom of on this uh, on the show, too, because you said like, I heard you mention end of watch. And like I heard you say Paranorman, the last five years isn't an example of this, but like in Paranorman and end of watch, to me, those are top five in terms of like Anna Kendrick movies we've watched on this. However, at least end of watch, I would put probably near the bottom in terms of performances because Anna Kendrick is barely there. She's there as a cameo. And Paranorman, I don't, I definitely don't agree. Like not everybody agrees with me on this, but I also put it fairly low because I didn't actually, I didn't love her performance in that, but I love that movie. It's like one of my favorite animated movies ever Mm -hmm. Uh, where, you know, for example, just, just in case Dakota is listening so that he can hear me mention happy Christmas again. I hate that movie. Let's but go. it's probably like my favorite Anna Kendrick performance. Like I have a whole list of all the movies I've watched so far, which is thirty six movies long, and I have Happy Christmas at number thirty three. But it's like my favorite performance from Anna Kendrick.
2: Interesting. I've I've only seen that movie once. I don't remember it, so I couldn't judge.
1: Well, I I won't keep talking about Happy Christmas. <laughs> that's, that's the that's the obligatory mention of Happy Christmas, and I'm gonna stop right there.
0: Hi, I'm Kylie. And I'm Elliot. We're hosts of Bad Dad, Rad Dad podcast, where we look for better dads one movie at a time.
1: We love each other. We love movies, and we love talking to each other about movies. And we have some pretty complicated relationships with our dads.
0: We believe movies can open the door to important and really beautiful conversations. That's why every week we talk about the movies we watch, the thoughts and feelings they brought up in us, and the best and worst dads we found in them.
1: We keep it totally spoiler-free so that you might be able to find something new to watch, some things to avoid, reignite the love of an old film and maybe make you feel a little less alone in this tricky little world we live in.
0: We love all kinds of movies. Our weekly picks can span decades, genres, countries, languages. We'll go watch the latest Marvel movie today, pick up a 70s horror film tomorrow, and finally watch that classic art house movie we've never seen on the weekend. And we'll be laughing and crying the whole way.
1: So join us every Thursday to hear about the movies we watched
2: that week, the feelings they made us feel, and the dads they made us wish we had. Because
0: my dad's dead.
2: And my dad's a deadbeat.
0: But as far as we're concerned,
2: not all dads have to be bad.
1: for the day that approaches is the day of the great revolution. Are you ready to
0: rule? We are ready to rule.
1: May you live to see the accidental dominance of the white race overthrown. Cool. You're gonna pitch me the next 9-11.
0: What about this guy, Moses Shabazz?
1: Classic lone wolf. Uh, there's four of them, actually. Duck walk. Back of lone wolf. Had to happen. My mission is to change the lives of poor people without the gun weapon.
0: Let's offer this Moses Shabazz some funds. He could set up a meeting with a rich ISIL sheikh.
1: Perhaps your army needs weapons? No, we don't believe in guns. If necessary, we'll call on the dinosaurs. But at the sound of a trumpet, they will come to our aid. All right, well, I guess let's get into it. We're here today to talk about the movie, The Day Shall Come. This movie is came out in 2019. Apparently, it came out in theaters, but I don't remember it. It may have been a limited release. Maybe it wasn't. IFC Films. This is the second movie by Chris Morris, who beforehand did Four Lions. Uh, Pierre, are you familiar with Chris Morris outside of this movie?
0: Apparently, I've seen him in an episode or a few episodes of The IT Crowd in season one um, before his untimely death of jumping out the window after realizing what, the the IRS was coming after him or something.
1: He was very that's,
2: good a, the that's a character's death, not Chris Morris's.
1: Yeah, I know. I was shocked for a minute. I was like, "Wait, did Chris Morris actually no, die?" Yeah, the
0: character's death. My bad. Um, yeah, and then apparently he was. What did, how did you say he directed Veep or was he in Veep as well?
2: I think he directed a few episodes of Veep. Okay. Um, it's not like something he. I haven't actually seen Veep, to be fair, but I know it's like Armando Iannucci and Jesse Armstrong, the sort of creative team behind, there's a UK series called The Thick of It, which is like a political satire from the mid-2000s, sort of in the same vein as Veep, but about UK politics. And they they went on to create Veep. I I just think Chris Morris ended up directing a few episodes of that, that show. So if you've seen that show, you'll have seen a few episodes of his directorial work, but I don't know what episodes they are. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah, I've seen some of his directorial.
1: Beyond that, I was kind of setting up Callum Mm -hmm. here because Callum, you do know uh, Chris Morris and I'm not super familiar with him, but you are.
2: Yeah, I think this movie we're talking about today, like this, I saw it in theatres. It came out in theatres here in the UK, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, it wasn't like a huge hit, but it was big enough to come out in theatres and people be going to see it and stuff because Mm -hmm. Four Lines has... Feature length debut film, like that was a pretty big hit, especially here. He is a famous sort of a comic satirist, I guess, is what he would be most known as. He did a really famous TV show in the 90s. This is, I really wanted to mention this. For anyone, you need to watch Four Lions and you need to watch, he's got a show in the 90s called Brass Eye. And Brass Eye was like a satire of news television, late night news shows that were like super sensationalist, like super, uh, so they'd cover like one episode's directed, uh, sorry, one episode is focused specifically on drugs in the UK and the drug pandemic. It's all about like, I don't know, satirizing how the media are whipping up this sort of public outcry storm for something that is not it's not not a problem but it's not as big a problem as they're making out to be so the mm. show is super over the top and super outlandish and what I think people forget is the show the show was first of all very controversial because there's an episode if you only watch one episode watch the 2001 episode called pedo Garden," which <laughs> is about pedophiles and like the, the, the pedophile scare that's currently going on and we need to catch them and kill them all and, uh, you know, is your chil- are your children safe? Do you know what they're up to? It's a really controversial episode of television, but it's hilarious. And people know the controversy behind it and the, the dark humour, but what I think people forget about Chris Morris is that he's also really, he can be very childish at times and very immature. So, like, he gets celebrities on to talk, about certain charities that are all fake, like the charities aren't real. And he gets them to endorse certain things. Like he gets a a famous DJ here in the UK to say on camera that paedophiles have more genetically in common with crabs than they do people. And then he he actually says, there's no scientific evidence for that, but it is fact. Uh, (laughs) And these people, you know, I assume it's sort of just taking the piss out of like how celebrities will jump on a bandwagon to be seen as morally right like oh my god you know we need to support these anti-pedophile charities or like these save the children charities and they're all fake like it's just sort of childish and taking the piss out of that but it is it is super dark so watch four lions which is a dark comedy and watch Peter get in the brass eye special you will get a taste of chris morris's humor from those two things specifically and this film, of course, that we're about to talk about. But this film that we're talking about today, I think it's a lot sadder than his normal work. His his usual work's a bit more biting and dark and deliberately provocative. I remember going to see this film and thinking, in the theatre when I saw it, I was like, oh, maybe has he lost a bit of his, in old age, like a bit of his anger? Or is he, you know, because it seems to me it's a little bit toned down from his previous stuff. But uh, I've listened to interviews about him, and I think it's just, he's just trying to capture the fact that what happens in this and the stories that it's based on are absurd, yes, but also incredibly, incredibly sad for the people involved in them.
1: Mm-hmm. For what it's worth, this movie, when it came out, at least over here, at least from some reviews I've seen, is still controversial enough. Like a lot of people. Um, Mm -hmm. It is still a satire, and I think it's still a pretty effective satire, though I don't have the context to compare it with his earlier stuff. But I think that, like, there's still plenty of people that, like, were pretty upset with the way that the message did or did not come across in various parts of it.
2: Yeah, there's a... I can't remember his name now, but there is certainly a comedian. I think he was involved in... um, the show community or something. I haven't watched that show, but there's certainly someone, I remember a review of someone sort of basically saying the problem that this movie has is that it feels like it's it's coming from a white British man and he feels morally superior to the material. And it's like, he didn't talk to anyone involved in these cases, these a hundred true cases that you mentioned. And if that is the case, if that is how it comes across, then that's a failing on Chris Morris's part, because there's a great episode of the Adam Buxton podcast, which interviews Chris Morris, where he reveals they did so much research. They went to prisons and they spoke to people that got you know involved in these cases and were in actually in jail as a result of them. They spoke to their family. So they, they did do their research. But if it's controversial and, and people are saying like it doesn't feel that way, it feels like it's coming from a white Brit, then maybe it, that is a failing on part of the film. But from my perspective, watching it as a white Brit and knowing who Chris Morris is, to me it's it's on brand for him.
1: Mm-hmm. So Pierre, really quickly do you want to describe the plot of this movie?
0: Uh, sure, yeah. So basically oh man, this is actually going to be <laughs> tough for me. There, there's a group of people who are farmers, but they're Islamic, right?
1: I mean, they and they run a farm. I was
0: kind of confused by that, honestly. They run a farm, and they aren't they technically like part of a an organization that well, is just the four of them though. Like
1: the main guy, Moses Al Shabazz, is a preacher for a group that he calls the Star of Six. I believe is what it's called. Which, like, it's got elements of Judaism, elements of Islam, elements of, like, this, that, and the other thing. It's, it's very kind of all over the place, and it's just, like, his little group. Most of them are reformed drug dealers in a farm in somewhere in urban Miami.
0: Okay, thank you. That makes more sense for me now. <laughs> um, and basically, Anna Kendrick's character, who works for the FBI, uh, her name is Kendra something... Um, Kendra is trying to pin them, trying to frame them for revolutionary activities I guess, or like trying to overthrow the government um, and basically be terrorists. So they they give them, they know they're desperate for money so they put some agents undercover to offer them things, or to try to trick them the, into committing a crime, specifically preferably a a terrorist crime or whatever. And that's basically the whole movie, actually, is just them continually throwing stuff at them and hoping that they'll do something illegal. But they never really do, I think.
1: And in this movie, we get like the back and forth with the FBI is constantly trying to, they're trying to like engineer this terrorist plot that doesn't actually exist yet. And the Star of Six and Moses al Shabazz are trying to get one over on what they don't know is the FBI to just get money to pay their rent, basically, because they're about to be evicted.
0: Yeah, which kind of leads to a fun dynamic where they are essentially framing the FBI on themselves to look like the good guys that can get money. I don't know. It's, yeah. It's a, it's a really interesting concept, which apparently actually at, at on some level happened. Um, so, yeah. Yeah.
1: Shockingly, at the beginning of this movie, when it says based on a 100 true stories, that's not incorrect. It may or may not be exaggerated because it's not actually based on details of a 100 specific true stories. But it is roughly satirizing uh, an event that actually happened called the, what was it called? The Liberty City 7 trial. And... I think the point is that like it is an event that outside of that also kind of happens occasionally. Yeah, G- general thoughts. Pierre, what do you think?
0: Um, I thought it was interesting, but I feel like I might have preferred it if it was more of like an episode. It felt like a TV show episode, like a really long one, because it was just kind of the same joke over and over again, where it just kind of got crazier and crazier. But I felt like it kind of... Was- ran out of steam like event maybe at about the hour mark because there wasn't much like there wasn't really any character development there wasn't really any like like the, the plot was very straightforward and i i feel like like the criticism in terms of like it, it it felt way too comedic to be feel like commentary if that makes sense like by the end when when uh they reveal that like oh these these people were promoted uh in the fbi and and the The stars of the movie are in prison. I just, part of me is just like, is this real? Like, I I still don't really buy it because, like, the movie made it out to be such a joke and so ridiculous that, like, I honestly can't really believe that it happened on that level. And if it did, they were like heavily satirized it. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah.
1: Just on that last note, I personally have a bit of an issue when movies are like clearly fictional and then have an outro that describes what happened to all of the characters in real life. Yeah. even when those characters weren't in real life. That was my same issue with one of my issues with A Simple Favor when we rewatched that. So like, I didn't, I didn't love that. But like, beyond that, I thought this movie was hilarious. Uh, one of my favorite books that I've read is called Catch-22. And like, in almost every chapter of Catch-22, the characters end up in some very weird paradox that like, that by the time they get to the end of it, they're like, wait a minute, nothing that we're doing makes any sense. And that's kind of what this movie reminded me of, because at the very beginning, the FBI is like trying to find this terrorist cell and the terrorist cell isn't doing what they want. So they start trying to like frame the terrorist cell by like engineering their actions. And by the end, there's literally the uh, one of them literally says, in order to avoid declaring a nuclear emergency, you have to declare a nuclear emergency. But it's got to be you that does it, because if I do it, even though I'm telling you to do it, then it doesn't count. And so by the end, they're just like telling each other to do things that literally don't make sense. And I think that like the way that the movie gets there is just really, really funny.
2: And he says as well, when he says that about the nuclear emergency and Anna Kendrick's character says, wait, that doesn't make sense. And he says, what you want to do is keep the contradictory elements apart. Say it slower, because if you say it too fast, it won't work. And then when she says it later on, the guy goes, that doesn't make sense. And he says, yeah, she said it too fast. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, this is like, a, again, I, I only know the Liberty City 7, which, as I say, as you mentioned, it's apparently based on 100 true stories. There's the only the one that I am specifically aware of. But if you want, you can, as I say, listen to Morris talk about his inspiration and stuff. And you will find that the FBI, I think to no surprise to anyone in a post 9-11 world, basically went out to find, you know, to try and calm the the nerves of the American people and say, like, we, we're on top of this terrorist thing and then there isn't any terrorists around really. So they're trying to, how do we solve a problem that doesn't exist? Well, we can create one with these people who are maybe slightly delusional and slightly espousing radical ideas, and we just sort of nudge them towards illegality. And then once they once they cross that mark, we'll say, bang, that's it. You're you're done for. Right from the start, when the when the guy's gonna the guy's gonna set off the bomb and he has to dial the phone number, and they haven't done their research, so they don't know that he's scared of the number five. And the phone number he has to dial is full of number the number five. It's like three, two, five, five, four, four, five, five, five. So he won't dial the number. So the FBI agent, you know, uh, undercover agent, ends up dialing most of the number. So they're, they're dialing their own bomb. Um, it is ridiculous. It, it, it is, as I say, it, Morris is pushing it sort of to its extreme. But I think to no surprise to anyone, the FBI has engaged in some shady activity in which leads to people... If you offer someone fifty thousand pounds who really, really needs money, 50000 dollars or whatever, and they're desperate for money, and you say, "I'll give you this if you buy guns," then I think most people who are in desperate situations will be like, "Yeah, I'll buy the guns or whatever. Give me the money," and then you you you've got them for like buying guns for to commit murder or whatever. Whereas you know they never were ever going to do it, and they never had the opportunity to commit these acts because they didn't have the funds without your help. Um, so it's sort of a, I don't know, a catch-22, as you say. It's an mm-hmm. inner loop. Like, it all ties in on itself. It doesn't really make sense. But there are people in jail for this. Uh, so I'd recommend trying to find out more. about. And, and, and as I say, I, I've listened to episodes. But I can't remember any specific cases other than the, the Liberty City 7. But it, it's pretty shocking. I think this movie—it's—I don't think it's hilarious. I think it's funny, but I think Morris has done way funnier stuff. I think this movie is really, really fucking sad.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So I just sort of leave the—I—I I leave the film angry, and I leave, you know, sort of angry. At like, how can people do this? How can people get? We need. How do we fix this problem? But the movie isn't big enough to fix the problem. Like nobody, nobody saw it. Nobody cares.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: But um, it's it, you know. It is out there. It is saying this thing exists. Maybe we should do something about this. But
1: Well, I think, like, if I had to sort of put two and two together from having seen this and the, admittedly, not as much research as I should have done, but the little bit of research I've done going into this episode as to, like, why it's, why this movie, if it was controversial, was controversial, it's exactly that, is that the movie points out a problem and, like, makes light of this problem. But it's not really big enough to do anything. Like, yeah. like, like I see this movie and I go, you know what? That is probably a thing that happens. But what do I do about that? Like, how do I? What What is the solution to get the FBI to stop scamming people? What is the solution to like ensure that people aren't in a situation where they're going to take bribe money from the FBI to do terrorism in the first place? I I don't know. And this movie not that movies have to provide an actionable solution all the time, but if a movie just points out that something happens and says, look at this thing, laugh at it, you know, that's not always enough.
2: Yeah, I agreed. I I like this movie, but it's, it's, as I say, it's not my favorite uh, of of Morris's, but it's sort of what drew me to it and what interests me about it. And I'm fascinated by the fact that Anna Kendrick is in it. Like, because, Morris isn't a big U.S. director. You know, his previous movie, as I said, Four Lines, that's a, a British dark comedy about four Muslim terrorists. That's what it's about. It's a huge hit here, but it's super dark. And As I say, he's done satire of the news and, and sensationalist news over their coverage of drugs and paedophiles and stuff. Like, it's not stuff that's super populist and super making, you know... Like, Lighthearted or whatever. I'm Mm -hmm. convinced she is aware of him because she used to date Edgar Wright. The director. Yeah, I believe she directed him around Scott Pilgrim days and he's English. So that's why I'm convinced she knows who Chris Morris is. But I remember when it was announced that she was in this movie and immediately I was, I was interested because Chris Morris, but I was also like, wait, Anna Kendrick's in this? That's, she, I I mean, I I think she's good in this movie. But her character isn't going to be popular. It's not going to be a nice person. She's playing, like mm-hmm. it, I think it's a, I think it's quite a bold choice, in my opinion. Yeah, I was really surprised to like this movie has
0: like very few big names, or at least big names like internationally. Like I, I saw her in Jim Gaffigan, and I think that's it. Um, so she's like a relatively big star for this.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think, like, that's a little bit weird, too, is neither her nor Jim Gaffigan are exactly playing good people, but both of them, well, maybe not Jim Gaffigan as much, but she's playing someone who is, like, weirdly likable, despite the fact that maybe she shouldn't be. She's kind of playing the villain of the movie, but also in, like, a dual role as she seems as close as the movie has to a protagonist that isn't uh, Marchant Davis, being Moses Al-Shabazz. Because, like, she kind of has a conscience throughout the movie as much as she's, you know, actively trying to frame this poor person for terrorism. She's not, like, she is constantly second-guessing herself and being like, hey, just don't do this thing. Oh, damn it, he did it. All right, I guess we're going to go forward with the terrorism thing.
2: I, again, I, as you said... um, she's she's obviously one of the main characters in it and she's the main character from the FBI side when I watch the film. She's like the ultimate antagonist of this movie because, mm-hmm. I, again, yes, she's the one FBI member that sort of points out the contradictory elements of it and the, the, the morality of what they're doing or the lack of and she seems to, at times, have a conscience of like, wait, this is wrong, we shouldn't do this. But she doesn't go on to do anything about it. She eventually always falls back in line with what Mm -hmm. the FBI tell her to do to the point where right at the end, she's the one that says like, screw it. I'm going to go and arrest him. Whether or not it might be saving his life from being shot. I'm going to arrest him. I brought him to the FBI's attention. It's me that brought him here. It's me that brings him back into the fold after, because remember halfway through they drop the investigation and then all of a sudden she brings him back when, Oh my God, he thinks he can buy nukes. Let's start again. And she starts again. And so she always is aware of how terrible the thing she's doing is, but puts her own career and her own sort of place in the FBI above ruining this man's life and ruining his family's life. Like to me, yeah. like I'm, I'm, I'm just watching it, and I, I think Anna Kendrick comes off like again. I think it's a very good performance, but I, I hate her in this movie. Like it, there's so many times where I'm like, you know what you're doing is wrong. Stop it.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's, I don't know, it's, I agree with everything you're saying. But also in this movie, and this might be like a flaw, just with casting Anna Kendrick, she's so likable, that it's really hard <laughs> to like, it's hard to like see her as the antagonist, even for me. I mean, maybe, maybe I'm like biased in the wrong way here. It would be easier for me to see Anna Kendrick's character in the FBI as the ultimate antagonist, the way you describe, if it was someone like Jessica Chastain, who, you know, I don't know from being a, a lovable, quirky performer in everything, right? Which, I don't know, that's not really a flaw. It's just like, that's that's what's so weird to me about this movie, is she she... The way that she plays her character is the ultimate complicit character she's evil in so much as she always has the option to do the right the, the couple of times that she has an, the choice to do the right thing she specifically doesn't but also she also acknowledges that there is a right thing thinks about it for a minute uh, and then goes you know what actually i'm going to go with the career choice and it makes it feel like like it makes it feel more human than it actually is or should be? I don't know if that's the right words for that.
0: No, it makes sense. Like, yeah, she's all. It always feels like you're like, oh, maybe she'll like stop this time, you know, and like change her mind, but she never actually does. But you're like kind of believing she will because it's Zendik kendrick and you're you're foreseeing like a, a character redemption or something.
2: Which is why I I would cast her in this movie uh, over Chastain. The one I was thinking about today, where I w- I was like, I wonder what this movie would be like with uh, an Anne Hathaway mm. type where people think Anne Hathaway is like super try hard, you know, always. And I'm like, I think that's kind of this character where it's like trying to please everyone all the time. And even when she's like, we're doing the wrong thing, we should stop this. You know, they're reminding her like, you want to be in this this organization, you want your promotion or whatever, you got to do this. Mm-hmm. And immediately it's like, oh, okay, I'm back to pleasing the bosses and pleasing the big wigs. Uh, so but i I'm, I think over and I'm putting Anna Kendrick in this movie I think she I think she sort of yes, the movie sort of uses her likability mm-hmm. to its advantage because what she's doing is horrific, but i and she knows that or whatever, but I think that sort of works in her favor but again, I just hate her and her character in this movie, like constantly you're just like you're not someone I want to spend time with like you'd stab me in the back in a second if you thought that it would further your career.
1: Mm -hmm. I think this might be the most cast-against type we've seen her in a movie. Because, like, I don't know that she has... Well, she's done pretty good in her career about not having a specific type that she is necessarily always cast in. But, like, um, she is best known for, you know, certain aspects, like in Pitch Perfect and Trolls and stuff. And this is the, the role I've seen where she has to use... Well, that exact, exactly that likability, but for a character that is inherently unlikable and would no, and is nothing like any of her other characters. This is very much the most cast against type. I think I've seen her and like, I don't know how well it works. I think that I, I agree with you at least in so far as I think I know what Chris Morris was doing. Like he didn't cast her without he didn't cast her for no reason. He knows specifically that he's going to get that likability in this role. It's just, I don't know. I don't know. It didn't. It didn't work as well for me as I wish it had, and I'm not sure why. Like, I don't know if that's Anna Kendrick or if that's Chris Morris's satire not being as biting as it could be, or if that's something else entirely.
0: It might have been interesting if they actually did put like a character that you would expect, because like the thing it. I think part of my problem was that it felt like the movie was just, like winking at you the whole time. Mm-hmm. And I think part of that is, is like casting someone like Anna Kendrick. Like you wouldn't see Anna Kendrick in an actual like CIA or FBI drama movie about something like this. Right. It, it she felt wasn't like...
1: in zero dark 30, for example.
0: Wait, was she actually in zero dark 30? No, she no. wasn't. <laughs> she was Jessica, Jessica, Ch- Jessica. I know Jessica. I, you said it sarcastically. So I was like, maybe she wasn't. And I don't remember. Um, <laughs> But yeah, like this, it reminds me of I don't know if you guys have seen the movie Airplane, but I love that movie because they specifically casted like drama actors in comedic roles. So all the all the acting felt really genuine and sincere in terms of how overly dramatic it was, even though it was a comedy. And I think mm-hmm. that might have worked well here because from what for me it felt like all the actors were like just having fun with it um, and weren't taking it that seriously which I I mean like it's not supposed to be taken seriously but I think if it felt like it was taking itself more seriously then it would have come off as more funny so like I think Jessica Chastain potentially could have been a great casting choice in this because it might have been more ridiculous to see someone so like seen as so professional playing such a stupid role if that makes sense or like kind of similar to like Burn After Reading I don't know if you guys have seen that too
1: Although the last uh, light-hearted role I saw Jessica Chastain in was so bad. So I don't know if I'm oh, going to stick by Jessica Chastain after seeing her in the eyes of Tammy Faye. My God.
2: Oh, well, I haven't seen that.
1: It's so bad. It might be my least favorite movie I saw last year. But anyway.
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm loving being on this episode because I disagree with it, but you guys, man, I think this movie isn't I don't think it's that ridiculous. To me, I, as I said, it just makes me so sad. Like, I, I, I don't know if it's just me, but the emotion works for me. Like, at the end of this movie, when, uh, especially with the choice of song, with The Cross by Prince coming on over the, the credits, and I, I just, I'm like, that is a perfect song. Like, that gets all my emotions out. I'm not in tears by the end,
1: mm-hmm. but I am
2: just, like, I feel this person's life having been ruined, and all we've watched is 90 minutes or however long the film is of him and his life and his family get ruined for nothing that wasn't his fault it was somebody thought he's maybe dangerous because he's saying things about the government we don't like but he's also in need of money so we're going to offer him money so i i just watched this movie and i think it's so tragic like i the the satire is is on the back burner i think a bit for me because as you say it's one joke and we get it. The FBI is constantly contradicting themselves just to create an enemy. We get it or whatever. So I think the the character stuff and the emotional stuff and is it Marshawn Davis? I just, I don't know. It just all works for me in this movie. Um, it just connects with me personally. And I've told people that so many times and nobody listens to me. Nobody watches the damn movie.
1: <laughs> it's extra ruthless in the script because the fact that he may be saying something dangerous and that he needs money are even like secondary or tertiary to what the actual plot is, which is, or to like the reason the plot is set in motion, which is that the FBI director wants a promotion. And it, and if he's going to get a promotion, he needs to catch terrorists. And there are no terrorists. So he's engineering a terrorist and this is the first guy that he could find, basically. Well, it's the second guy you could find. The first guy you could find that isn't afraid of the number five.
2: Yeah. But. <laughs> and also it becomes quite clear that Marshawn Davis is suffering with some form of illness or some form of delusion because he's, you know, he thinks animals talk to him. And at the end, he sees the horse that isn't there, uh, which is what he believes to be a sign that God is going to put the bullet in the gun that he, you know, it's going to, he's going to escape by firing the gun. It's going to let him go free. So it's, it's a story about a sick man being, do you, know what it's, do you know what it's like? It's like hereditary. <laughs> I mean, that sounds ridiculous, but it's a story about someone who's in a story that's already written and they don't know it's being written, essentially. Mm-hmm. You know that idea in hereditary, like this is already planned. There's nothing you can do about it. There are higher forces at work and you're just along for the ride. You being, you know, the main characters in that movie. That's the same with Marshawn Davis in this. He has no idea that there are bigger things at play. He just thinks, someone's offered me money for this weapon. Let's set, let's give them fake weapons and we'll get the money. And then he even goes to the FBI at one point and says, someone's trying to sell me weapons. Like, would would you give me a reward if I tell you who's selling weapons? And it's like, he's informing on the FBI to the FBI, but he doesn't know that. Like, that's what I mean. Like, this, this is all written and pre-planned. I'd love to. In fact, I may watch Hereditary later on tonight. just just don't feature.
1: <laughs> I, but
2: they're so different. I didn't, I didn't back to
1: that. Actually, that's like a really good point. Because like every time he gets second thoughts and like there are a couple of times in the movie, probably three or four, where he's basically going to just stop everything and like, like move away from, his cur- from the people that are offering him money and try something else. And every single time, he just happens to see a sign from God or something he interprets as a sign from God. Because like there's the one time where everyone has left him, he's on his farm uh, trying to figure out what to do, because if he doesn't pay the rent by tomorrow, he's going to lose his farm. So what happens? He's like, you know what? I'm going to figure out something else. And then lightning strikes the crane that he keeps talking about, where he says, I'm going to make lightning strike this crane. So suddenly, God has told him, Oh, no, you need to keep doing what you're doing. Not actually, but like at two or three key points, there's divine intervention that just happens to like put him back on the path of this story that he doesn't know he's the victim of. Absolutely. Yeah. And like similar to, so like Anna Kendrick, there's I guess a little bit of a parallel here. Anna Anna Kendrick's character has several opportunities where she can make the choice to do the right thing or to follow her career. And she always follows her career. Marchant Davis's character gets a similar choice at like many spots in the movie to the point where he's engineering them himself. Like he'll get, like he goes to the FBI to inform on himself. And every single time, every single time he has the opportunity to make the right choice or the choice that will get him money, if those two are different, he makes the right choice. And it doesn't matter. Because whoever he's talking to says, no, actually, that wasn't the right choice. So we're going to make the other choice for you. Because he goes to the FBI to inform on the FBI. And they're like, okay. And then they leave. And he doesn't get anything out of it. And he has to go home with nothing. And then at the very end, he tries to arrest the one guy who is trying to frame him. And it doesn't work. Because he doesn't have that power. He doesn't know how to arrest people. And the FBI are right there to frame him anyway. So like, there's actually that kind of that parallel between the two
2: of them. Yeah, he goes to sell the the nukes. He goes to sell them, even though he knows they're not nukes because they just pee in the canisters. Mm-hmm. But he knows they're completely empty, so he knows he's not committing a crime. Like he's just doing it for the money. I mean, he is committing a crime. He's defrauding what he believes to be Nazis. I mean, he's defrauding someone. They just he thinks they're Nazis and they're undercover cops. It's fraud. It's not actually selling nukes. And he knows that because he's like, we peed in the canisters. And the FBI know that because they know the canisters are empty as well. But the police declare a nuclear emergency anyway. And that's when the FBI need to take control of it. How do you take control of a nuclear emergency if there isn't one? Well, you need to declare one to take control of it. But we know there isn't one. And then that's, as I say, it just all loops back in on itself. And it doesn't matter that he did the right thing, well, Say the right thing. Fraud is never the right thing, but it's not as bad as selling nukes, right? Yeah. He just did it for the money. He's doing it to save himself and his family. He's not mm. doing it to commit terrorist acts. But it doesn't matter. They they just write the story anyway, and uh, and at the end he ends up in prison. all his all his his uh, his followers end up in prison. His wife ends up in prison, and we don't know what happens to the child. And again, yes, that is given as like you know, text at the end which you already mentioned you you you're not a fan of, which is kind of like the end of Unbreakable, the M Night Shyamalan movie. Unbreakable, remember it's got the it's got the sort of David Dunn did this for the next mm. ten years or whatever. But uh I, I yeah I, I kinda have problems with that as well when it's like it's like fiction and it's like mm. this happened next. And you're like, well no it didn't because the movie came to an end. It's you could say anything happened. Yeah but That's how they choose to end it.
1: But, like, I did actually look up... Uh, I looked up the real case, the Liberty City City 7 here, and the ending of this movie isn't 100% what happened in the case of the Liberty City 7. It's actually, like, it's a clear inspiration. Like, yeah. obviously, the Liberty City 7 is an inspiration on the movie, but even on that end title card, it's it's very close to what actually happened to the real sentences of the Liberty City 7.
2: I believe, and- I, again, I, I could be wrong, because as I see. Morris has mentioned a few others, but I believe the Liberty City Seven was something about guys that were going to flood the Sears Tower and then ride into Chicago on horseback once the waters had receded, which is you know as he said like that's clearly not a terrorist plot. That's that's an insane thing to think you could pull off. That's people just saying whatever they can to get this money they're being offered. Like yeah, we'll. We'll flood the Sears Tower, we'll flood all of Chicago, and then we'll storm the city on horseback with swords. And uh, the FBI being like, "Well, that sounds dangerous. So that's that's planning a terrorist atrocity." But it's it's not because that's never going to happen. How the hell do you flood all of Chicago if there's only like five of you? But but these people are in jail, so you know. I guess America's safe now, folks. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs>
1: Yeah, like in that real case, the deputy director of the FBI is quoted as saying, in terms of plans, it was more aspirational than operational. And it's like, how can you say that and then still arrest people for 33 years?
2: Yeah, it's like saying, I want to do this. And then having no planning, no means of carrying it out. If you could get arrested for that, I imagine a lot of drunk people could get arrested for some stuff just being like, "Ah, fuck! I want to do this. I want to. I want to go and punch that guy or whatever. And you're like, oh, assault. And you're like, he didn't assault anyone. He just he just said it. But, uh, oh well. But yeah, again, it's not a great movie. I, I don't think it's a great movie. And it's not Morris's best. But I think it's a very good starting point. And if if you want to go further with Morris, he's done way better stuff than this and way, way darker stuff. So I'd, I'd, I'd highly recommend it.
1: I'm also like very interested to see what he does next. I'm gonna go back and like watch. Well, I actually have. Uh, I found Peter Geddon. That's on YouTube. It's on. Okay, I found it on Daily Motion, but I haven't. It, it's on YouTube. It's on Daily Motion. I'm gonna watch it right as soon as we're done recording this. It's hilarious. But uh, I'm I'm excited to see if he does anything next too. Simon
2: Pegg appears in it uh, very very briefly, but Simon Pegg is in that Peter Geddon special, and. Um, Yeah, when it comes up at the bottom, like this person saying this, you know, you know, promoting this charity or, you know, kids can talk to people online and they can do this or whatever. That's real British celebrities, 100%. Some of them are politicians as well. They were absolutely duped into saying this ridiculous stuff that they're talking about, like the crab thing and whatever. Like, as I say, Morris is a a satirist and he does have this anger about him, like, we should tell these stories about the government fucking us over. But he also does have this childish sense of, we got celebrities to say the dumbest thing on TV. Like, it's sort of a weird mix.
1: I noticed he was very active in the 90s, which is exactly, like, the same time as the Ali G show was on. So, like, yeah. exactly the kind of same like same same group of people as Sasha Baron Cohen.
2: Get people to say dumb shit on TV. There's mm-hmm. just a joy in it. There's just an absolute joy in that.
1: <laughs> so I think... Before we wrap up, Pierre, where where would you put this movie in terms of like Anna Kendrick movies, and in terms of like Anna Kendrick performances?
0: Um, I'd say this is like probably an upper tier Anna Kendrick film. In terms of performance, I'd say it's one of her better ones too. I think both upper tier. Yeah.
1: What about you, Callum? Of the ones you've seen?
2: Yeah, um, it's 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 one of my favorites. It's not my ultimate favorite. I think it's a better. Is it a better Anna Kendrick movie than it is a Chris Morris movie? Although he's only done two movies. Yeah, to me, I think it's it's good for her. I wish she would do more stuff like this, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Where she doesn't come across as really, really likeable. And I think A Simple Favour is in a similar vein. Although A Simple Favour is much campier and much more populist and whatever. But I want to see more of that from Anna Kendrick. Stop singing. I don't want to see you sing anymore. Seen it. Done it. Love it. Love it. But... Done it. So move on. So I'm, I've got this movie in in the upper tier. It's not ulti- ultimate favorite, but it is one I've seen a few times and would wish more people would
1: watch. I can definitely agree with all of that. I, I would put it upper tier as well. And I think of it like, in terms of performance, most of my favorite Anna Kendrick performances are above this movie. But I would also say that like what's really interesting about this is... It's a very, very different performance for her. And I would like to see her do more stuff like this because I don't think she quite nailed it this time. She got close. But I think that if she did like another one of these, uh, another one of these movies where she had to be roughly as evil as she is in this movie, but was able to either leverage her likability in a little bit better of a way or just not be as likable, I think it would be a little bit better. Now that she's done one of these movies, I'd like to see her do it again. I think I had it number seven on my list. And in terms of, oh, number eight on my list of all of her movies. And in terms of her performance, I would also probably put it maybe right below the top five of just like her performance.
2: I'm happy with that. I can agree. I concur.
1: (laughs) Thank you so much, Callum, for coming on. You may be shocked to hear this because I told you we normally shoot for an hour and we are literally at one hour right now. But this episode actually went on a little longer than I thought, which is always a good thing. That's that's never a bad thing, unless it goes for like four hours.
2: I would never do four hours, don't worry.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so uh, where can people find more of you? And what do you guys got coming up? I guess, you know, you've said both of those things, but that was an hour ago. Let's talk and yeah. say it again.
2: <laughs> you could find us at Scare traducing, which anytime I guest on a podcast, I always do point out that. That's a silly name for a podcast. It's not a real word, but it's spelled exactly as it sounds. Scare. Producing. Just on Twitter and the usual Instagram and stuff. And then upcoming, I believe we said is Lux Eterna by Gaspar Noé. We will be doing a couple of films in June, like Alex Garland's Men and the, The Black Phone, the Ethan Hawke movie that's coming out very soon. So it's all horror stuff. But... Listen to us even if you don't like horror, because sometimes we'll just rant on about the Oscars or whatever. We do, we do like other films as well. So thanks for having me on.
1: Pierre, do you know what we're doing next week? Next week is actually something very special.
0: Uh, I don't remember. So please tell me. Oh, that one. Yeah, never mind. Never but you say it, just in case I
1: <laughs> Anna Kendrick has been in two TV shows, and one of them is actually a movie that was cut into a TV show because it was on the streaming service Quibi. Lots of bad decisions there, but uh, hopefully the actual movie itself wasn't one of them because we are going to watch Dummy and see... I guess we can report back on whether or not it works as a series, considering it's an hour and a half long as a movie.
0: Yeah, I guess we'll find out. Sorry, I thought I was thinking it was the the Kendrick, the other Kendrick one. I I got confused.
1: Oh, that's going to be right after that. But we'll, we'll, we'll mention that in the next episode. Very cool. Just so people don't get their hopes up just yet. I don't know why, why would, they wouldn't get their hopes up, but we're going to do oh. it either way.
0: I think you made it worse by saying that. <laughs> Uh-oh. It's
1: going to be a good episode. Those episodes are always my favorite. And I'm not going to give any more details so that people are just like, what is he talking about?